Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we need you. We thank you that you're available to us. That by your spirit, you are here with us. You have spoken in this text. You are speaking even now. You indwell those who have trusted Jesus. You are present in this room, inhabiting the praises of your people. You are with us. You translate our prayers into things that the Father receives, like incense, as you, you groan over us. Thank you, Spirit, for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Jesus, that you're praying for us by name now. We are a people truly enfolded in the presence of God, and for that we are grateful. And as we come to this moment prioritizing your voice, I pray, God, that, that you would apply it powerfully to our hearts and our lives, and that as a result of these moments together, we would be better equipped to stay faithful to the very end. <clears throat> I pray that you would be doing a work in us that prepares us for moments down the road to, to be the sorts of people that all the way to the very end that we don't fizzle out, but that we remain strong in you even in the midst of opposition. Would you make that true and use this text to unlock that in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a game today. I trust that some of you will be watching that. Uh, I've had some debates in my own house with my boys. You know, is it going to be Joe Cool, Matt Stafford finally going to get his? You know, we're all wondering. And uh, ultimately, in watching a game like the one we will today, there's there's a question of how is the team going to how's the team going to do when they're tired? There's that fourth quarter reality. What does it mean to press through when the clock is winding down? Some teams consistently rise to the occasion when the clock is ticking down. Some fizzle in exhaustion because there's a certain sort of preparation required for, for the fourth quarter. The conditioning, the mindset. There, there's things that are happening long before the fourth quarter starts. In fact, some of it was going on since before the season started. That's either preparing a team to be ready in the final moments or not. You know, there is, to tip my hand a little bit for what I'm expecting this afternoon, you know, Matthew Stafford actually has the, the record in the NFL for the most come-from-behind wins in the fourth quarter in a single season. Eight times in 2016. That's really the only way you can win if you're in Detroit. You're always coming from behind. But even still, he pulled it off eight times in one season. And there's, you know, there's, there's different ways that coaches try to get at this, trying to prepare players and teams to be ready when they're ready to give out. Pete Carroll, the, the great NFL coach, says that I'm always hitting the fourth quarter button. And what he means is that in practice or in workouts, he waits until his players are tired and go, okay, this is fourth quarter right now. Or he says, even in long meetings where I just want them to focus and they're starting to lose track, I'll say, hey, hey, fourth quarter, give me focus right now. And he says, at times it feels kind of cheesy or it feels trumped up, but he says, what I'm doing is I'm always training them to realize you are preparing to finish, not to start. You're not a starter, you're a finisher. And so we're going to work that into the way we do this all the time. We're going to hit the button and be reminded what's going to happen when you're exhausted and when you want to give up. And in many ways, our our time in Daniel 6 is like a, a hitting of the fourth quarter button for us as exiles. We've been rehearsing this reality that we are strangers, aliens, exiles, that we live at a distance from God. We, we live in this world where our hope is for a city whose maker is God. We are not at home, and we are studying the life of a, a man that remained faithful for seven decades, living at a distance from home. And we come to this episode, which is 
arguably the most famous. If we were to play word association and I said Daniel, you would probably say lion's den. It's what people know of Daniel. But interestingly, it doesn't occur until the very end of his life. And it is a picture for us of what it looks like to remain faithful, to flourish even in the fourth quarter. When you're exhausted and tired and what comes naturally is probably just to say, you know what, I'm all done. And so we're going we're gonna to lean in together. And, and as it were, it's, it's a hitting of the fourth quarter button to go, okay, I don't know how long your clock is ticking and you don't know how long mine is. But if we're going to be the sorts of men and women that, that are faithful to the very last moment, there's some things that have to be true of us that this text is going to help unlock. And we're going to see that fourth quarter flourishing is going to require fourth quarter praying, praying with urgency and faithfulness, even in the face of thronging opposition, opposition that is constantly pressing in and never giving up. So together, we're going to learn that as we pay attention to Daniel in chapter 6. The first thing I want us to note in verses 1 through 9 is what is the nature of the opposition? We're going to pay attention to what sort of opposition is in his life, and we'll understand in the same way how we face opposition in ours. Look back at verses 1 through 9 with me of this text, if you would. It says, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Just a note on this, we've had another change of power We've, we've been on this journey with Daniel for quite some time, if you've been studying with us, but last week the Babylonian kingdom was sacked by the Medes and the Persians, and there's a new man on the throne, and there is a new kingdom that is reigning. His name is Darius here. There's one of two options as to who this person is historically. This may, in fact, be the same person as Cyrus, which would mean that the last verse of this text that says, um, during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, that could also be translated during the reign of Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. They might be the same person, that this would just be one of his, his throne names. Or it may be a general in Cyrus's army that is reigning in this particular area of the kingdom. We're not entirely sure, but we do know there's a new man on the throne, that things have continued to change, and Daniel is still standing. And we're going to wrestle with the fact that even though so much changes, the opposition is still present. It says, over them three, there were three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So the, the satraps, that's probably not a word you used this week. Uh, these are like provincial leaders. There's a, there's a hundred plus of them all across the country. And there's going to be a few a few leaders that are elevated above them to make sure the king suffers no loss. And the idea is so that there's not just kind of skimming off the top. He's trying to put people of integrity in place. And Daniel rises up because once again, he's recognized as having an excellent spirit. It says this, this Daniel was distinguished above all the other high officials because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and they said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, they're all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. What you see here is that all the leaders are aligned. It says that they come, uh, they come as one. In the, in the original language, when they're, approaching, um, when they're approaching Darius here and then again later in the text, it says they thronged about him. So they all come as one and they surround Darius and they're saying, uh, in an attempt to, to find out Daniel, they're coming up with this rouge, this kind of rouge of, hey, let's, let's get you to, everyone needs to pray to you to align this new kingdom and all the leaders in this new kingdom so that you can have the proper authority. This opposition is aligned. They're circling Daniel. They in their, their own right are like a troop of lions. They're like a group of lions swirling their prey from the beginning before he's ever in the lion's den. These leaders wanting to see him fall. And as we see this, this very aligned, aggressive opposition, there's a few things that become true about the opposition that faces the souls of an exile. Three notes that I would make that come out of this text that I think apply in our lives as well. The first is this, the nature of opposition towards those that are far from home and trying to remain faithful to a distant kingdom. The first reality of the opposition that faces us is this, it never stops. It never stops. If we're expecting otherwise, then we may just not be reading the scriptures honestly and clearly because for Daniel, for the exilic living that has happened, he has been really faithful and steady for decade after decade after decade and the opposition just keeps coming by a new name, in a new kingdom, but they're all seeking him in the same way that there's been pushback time and time and time again. It never stops. It's like, it's like going to the ocean and sitting at the shore, you know, east coast, west coast, Galveston. We have a beach too, sort of, right? <laughs> if you sit on the beach and you watch the waves come in, do you know that on average the waves crash eight times a minute? Eight times a minute. You can sit there all day long. It's going to come out to about eight times a minute. It's just going to keep coming. That's 11,000 times a day if you sit there for a full day. And if you sat there for your lifetime, there would be moments where storms are kicked up or where a rogue wave comes in and it crashes harder than the rest. But what you're going to find is that in the course of a lifetime, 336 million times, the wave would just keep... This is the way that opposition, when you live in a world that is marked by sin and brokenness, that is under the curse of sin and the weight of brokenness separated from the presence of the fullness of God's glory, that when you call a place like that home, but you're longing for a home with him, the recognition is it's just going to keep coming. And if you expect something different, you will be constantly discouraged, disappointed, and frustrated to feel like, why is it that it's never just easy? Because the truth is, the New Testament tells us we have three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that they are waging war against the health and the wholeness of who you are at a soul level. And so the invitation is to just first by recognizing, okay, what is the nature of our opposition? The nature of the opposition is that it never stops. It's just going to keep coming up against us. But the second note to make is this. Our faithfulness in the face of that sort of opposition has very little impact on the opposition itself. In fact, if it has any impact in this text, and I would argue in a lot of other places, it actually just makes it harder. 
You follow? Our faithfulness in the face of that sort of unrelenting opposition, it doesn't all of a sudden make it easy. Daniel has had some breakthroughs along the way, no doubt, but it's never become easy. For instance, we saw him. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled before Daniel because of Daniel's faithfulness. He became like a beast before God. You remember this? And he came into his right mind and he came to trust the covenant God of Daniel. This is the king of Babylon that reigned for 43 years. But incidentally, right on the, on the heels of that, Nebuchadnezzar died within three years. Nothing really changed in the Babylonian empire. New kings raised up that were as equal, or pardon me, as evil and oppressive as Nebuchadnezzar ever was in his heyday. And Daniel was right back in the churn, even though he had been so faithful and had seen momentary victory. That it just kept coming for him. And in fact, his willingness, even in this text, it says that he was raised up because he had an excellent spirit and the king would suffer no harm. You get the sense that the other satraps are like, man, we're never going to be able to skim off the top with this guy in power. We got to figure out how to get him out of here so we can leverage our political power for our benefit. You get a sense that it's actually his very integrity that is making the opposition even more pressing. And some of you have felt that reality, that when you take a stand for what is right and true and good within your workplace or with your circle of friends, all of a sudden it's like, really? You believe that? You stand for that? You're not going to join us in this? That there's a certain sense in which opposition, it never stops, and our faithfulness ends up just kicking up the, the, the silt at the bottom of the riverbed all the more. Well, it may be that if, if you are really religious person, and we, we're identifying this, this is one of those places where religious people hit eject on God. Because religion says, just do the right thing and God's going to bless you. It's transactional, one for one. I've really been praying and doing it right, and so now everything's going to go well for me. And we get exilic living, a man that's been praying faithfully for 70 years, and it just keeps pressing against him. It's not going away. And religious people go, well, God, why me? Why is it so hard? You're indebted to me. You're supposed to deliver for me. But those who've cultivated real relationship with God realize that, no, 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 you're with me in this. You will sustain me. You will see me through. You are my prize, not the activity that you might do on my behalf. You see, in the midst of thronging opposition, we recognize that it never stops and that our faithfulness may actually make it worse, which brings us to a third note about opposition, and it's this, coasting is never an option. Coasting is never an option. Past faithfulness doesn't accrue in such a way that then you can just kind of hit your stride and slide on through. Daniel is in his 80s, maybe even 90 in this text, depending on how all the dates line up. He is an old man. If your children's book had like a, your children's Bible had a picture of like a young strapping Daniel, it's heretical. (laughs) Not the case. He is an old man. And the opposition is still there and he's still standing because coasting is not an option. I've had spiritual heroes that late in life made shipwreck of their faith that men and women that I was so convinced that, oh, this one, this one is untouchable. He certainly is going to cross the finish line. And then public and painful ways, they make really foolish and sinful decisions that destroy families and ministries and 
It reminds me of the, the famed seminary professor that five decades into teaching in the seminary used to pray regularly at the start of class, and dear God, would you please keep me from becoming a dirty old man? The students in his class would consistently say what an impact it had on them that this hero of the faith late in life still realized, I'm not coasting. Like If I'm going to be faithful to the end, if we're going to hit that fourth quarter button and be prepared, what we have to realize is this, it's never going to get easy. It's not intended to. In fact, the, the invitation is to say, there's thronging opposition, but I was expecting it and I'm prepared for it. And so it raises the question, how is it that we prepare to be the sorts of faithful exiles that don't lose heart, that don't grow exhausted and disenchanted and just throw in the towel? And I think we're going to see in Daniel a picture of the sort of prayer life, the sort of thing that happens in the secret place that can unlock fourth quarter flourishing for us. I want you to look back at verse 10, and I want to explore what does is, what is fourth quarter praying look like? The sort of praying that's constantly hitting that button and preparing us to stay faithful to the end. It says this, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This verse is stunning, and I think in this, this verse, I just want to make five notes on what fourth quarter praying looks like. The sort of praying that gives ballast to your soul and prepares you to stay faithful and not give up in the long journey that is required of faithful exiles. The first note is this, fourth quarter praying is defiant. Defiant in all the healthy ways against the evil and the brokenness in the world. You see, did you notice the first phrase in that verse? I mean, the author is highlighting this for us because verse 9 says they signed the document and the injunction. Verse 10 says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, then he went to his house and opened the windows and got on his knees and started praying. So they signed an injunction that says, if you pray and anybody sees it, you're going to get fed to the lions. And he goes, oh, what'd you say? It's signed? It's official? Okay. <laughs> now he goes and gets on his knees and opens his windows and starts praying. It's defiant. It stands in the face of what's happening culturally. It stands in the face of the headwinds and of what people say is normal or expected or demanded. He goes, not of me. No, no, no. When it's signed, then I'll know. It's time for me to go and continue the work that I've been doing previously. You see, in the face of what the culture says, the invitation is to, is to know that God is working in unseen places. It raises the question for me, if someone told you that you couldn't pray for 30 days, what would you think? There's part of me that when I'm reading this text, I'm like, Daniel, it's only 30 days, just a month. You're an old man and you've been faithful for a long time. You get a pass on this one. Just kind of mutter some prayers under your breath. Just keep it cool for 30 days and then get back to it. Some of us, if we were posed with a question, what if you couldn't pray for 30 days? We go, I don't know that I've prayed in 30 days. Not much would change, maybe. Maybe I am praying, but I don't know that there's any power in it. So if you tell me I can't do it, I guess I'm just fine without it for a little while. But asking God, what would be the case if, if he told us our church couldn't pray for 30 days? I long to be the sort of man, and I long for us to be the sort of church that we go, oh no. Like shut the doors and close it down. Because if you're telling me we're going to engage in this sort of work, 
waging war for people's souls in a distant territory, clinging to God from a distance, and you're telling me I don't get my walkie-talkie, I don't get to interact with the commander, I don't get to lay hold of his power, just close the doors and let's go home. You see, the invitation is to say that this recognition that for Daniel, he's going, I can't go a day. He can't go a morning. He prays three times a day. It's like, you can't, you can't knock me off for 30 days. He's defiant in his prayer going, I have to continue to do this no matter what. It's not just that, he's hopeful. He's hopeful. He opens the windows towards Jerusalem. And in so doing, he's reminding himself of what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple. Solomon, in praying in the dedication of the temple, said, God, even if the people are exiled and carried away, may your name always be in this place. And if we pray towards this place, that you would hear us and answer. He's been doing this for 70 years. His home was burned. He's never been back. He's going to die in a distant land. And here he is still on his knees, imagining in his mind's eye that he can see Jerusalem. And he's going, oh God, my hope is still in you. Have you prayed for something and continued to pray for it in a way that people go, really? That's still on your prayer list? Like you haven't given up on that yet? That for Daniel, fourth quarter faithfulness and flourishing was born out of the fact that he is defiant and he's hopeful in the face of what feels like hopeless circumstances. We're actually going to learn in a couple of chapters in his prayer journal in chapter 9 that he is right around this time he was studying the book of Jeremiah and he found out that God had said the exile was only going to last 70 years. Now, he didn't know when the clock started on that. Was it when, he's wondering, is it when I was taken away in exile? Is it when 20 years later, when Jerusalem was finally burned to the ground? Like, when did the clock start going? He doesn't know, but what he knows is it's the fourth quarter. And he is hopeful. He's going, God, your word says this. And even though it feels like nothing has happened for the last 70 years, and there's no real clarity as to how we would ever get home, God, I'm daring to believe that you could do this. He remains hopeful in the face of what feels like hopeless circumstances. The third note of fourth quarter praying is that he uses aids. He uses aids to stir himself up. Did you hear it? He goes to the upper chamber. He opens the windows. He gets on his knees. He directs himself towards Jerusalem. The way that John Calvin talks about it in his commentary is this. He says, our spirit is so prone to slumber. Ooh, I read it and was like, oh, that strikes a little too close to home there, John. He says, we're just so sleepy internally. And that some of us may have times of prayer, but it's just kind of this, if we're honest, it can feel like just a sleepy, my mind is wandering. And, and the invitation of the model for Daniel for fourth quarter praying is use whatever it takes to awaken your soul. He's upstairs and he opens the windows and the breeze is coming in and he's on his knees and he's directing himself with imagination towards the presence of God. I don't know what it is for you, but what I do know is this. We need to wake ourselves up in prayer. It may be that you need to go for a walk or you need to be prostrate or you need to get on your knees or you need to pray like the Hebrews do, rocking with your whole body. They, they would pray in this way so that they wouldn't lose track of what they were doing. Maybe you need to pray aloud because when you pray in your mind, your mind just wanders. Maybe you need to light a candle and enjoy the quiet, listen to some worship and allow your soul to rise up and be awakened so that when you pray, you actually pray. But Part of fourth quarter praying is that he's going to do whatever it takes. 
He has arranged his life to create space, to feel the wind in his face, and to be alive, praying this sort of defiant, hopeful prayer. Use the aids to awaken your soul. Otherwise, we, we will so quickly be, be nudged off center because the opposition will continue to come like waves on the shore. Two more notes. It's disciplined prayer. Did you hear it three times a day? Uh, sometimes you hear people that pray with such power and it feels so spontaneous and you're like, wow, they really, when they pray, it just flows. And it, it's kind of like seeing a musician. If you've ever seen a musician that has really mastered their instrument and all of a sudden they can just play in the moment, they're playing the piano or they're riffing on the guitar and you're like, man, it feels like they're just in uncharted territory right now. They're, they're just out there off-roading, doing some beautiful thing that they hadn't planned. And you go, that's amazing. Now, the only way you get to that space, that power, that mastery, is hundreds and thousands of disciplined hours learning the basics. And the truth is that praying with this sort of power, Daniel has been disciplined. He has predetermined three times a day, this is where you're going to find me. If we think that we're going to kind of fumble into praying with spontaneity and power and really interacting with God, then I think we're, we're missing some reality that fourth quarter praying comes from being so committed to my life is given structure around these moments. I hope that none of you wake up each day and think, I wonder if today is the day that I'm going to brush my teeth. I, don't, I hope you don't do that. If you do, I forgive you and I love you, but let's change that. You know, we wake up and we go, yeah, I'm going to brush my teeth. That's what I do. I wake up and brush my teeth. I brush my teeth before bed. I'm, I'm taking care of the dental hygiene, right? I, there are some things that we have just predetermined that we go, of course I'm going to do that today. I have such sadness that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that believe that Jesus is on the throne and that he's available to us and that he'll speak to us and he will listen to us and he will carry our burdens, yet we have not predetermined that we will be people of prayer. Daniel goes three times a day. You know where to find me. I've already decided. It's not up for grabs day to day because I know that if I'm gonna flourish in the midst of opposition, I need to lay hold of my God. Lastly, it's absurdly grateful. Did you hear the content of his prayer? <laughs> oh, man. I love it. He got down on his knees three times a day. He prayed and he gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Do you remember what just happened? They just signed the law that said, you will be fed to the lions for worshiping and praying to God. And he goes and he gets on his knees and the content of his prayer is gratitude. This is power prayer. Ephesians 5 says that if you want to be filled with the Spirit, give thanks always and for everything in Christ Jesus. This is like Job prayer, that when everything is stripped from him, he comes and he blesses the name of God. He says, you give and you take away. I will bless your name. The sort of prayer that even when it's really hard says, yes, I knew that opposition wasn't going anywhere. I know the character of my God and I know that he's with me in the midst of it. So when I come and I pour my heart out to him, even when my life is on the line, it's still gratitude. That's power prayer. That requires your theological goggles to be in place, that you're seeing this only through the realities of what God has said to be true of the world because the world itself is certainly not generating gratitude in his heart. But he knows who God is. He's been with him three times a day, every day, disciplined, hopeful, pouring out his heart to him. And so now, even when things are hard, he's going, oh God, I bless you. You're gonna get glory through this. 
You always have, you always will. I am not afraid. He prays with gratitude. It's absurd. (laughs) It's absurdly grateful. You see, this is the sort of praying, this is the sort of preparation work that's going on in all the days leading up to the fourth quarter that allows a saint to flourish in those moments and exile to stay faithful even when it's hard. But I just want us, as we finish, to think about this reality, the, the flourishing that comes in. I'm not, I'm not going to read all the verses to you, but it's a familiar story from this point forward that in verses 17 through 28, we see the flourishing that floods in yet again to Daniel's story. He is bound and he's cast in with the lions. And it's this amazing picture of a, a pagan king that is fasting through the night and praying for this faithful Jewish man down in the pit. The Darius goes back and prays, and in the, after fasting, not eating, and having no diversions, he runs at sunup, just as the sun is coming up, and the stone rolls away, and there's a voice from inside, and the first word of Daniel is a blessing on the king who threw him in the pit. Oh, king, live forever. I'm like, what? There's the lions purring, just sitting in his lap, and he goes, I have been found blameless before God, and by the way, before you, king, I've done you no harm. And I have been spared. He's ushered out. And, and then there's an edict written, once again by a pagan king, for all the peoples, nations, and languages, that this God delivers. Yet again, he is getting glory because what we are seeing is that God doesn't just reign in Jerusalem. He reigns in Babylon, and he reigns in Medo-Persia. He reigns in every country on the planet, that he is a God that knows no national bounds. He is a God that has authority over all. And here again, he's winning this victory, and he is rescuing his faithful servant. Beautifully, uh, I just want to read you one note from one of Daniel's contemporaries because I find this particularly stunning. In Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, this is another prophet alive while Daniel was alive. And he wrote this. He says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So he's saying, even if all these people were living in the midst of the sin of this time, they wouldn't be able to deliver everyone. Only they would be delivered. In verse 20, he repeats it. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. One, isn't it amazing that one of his contemporaries, while he's still alive, is already putting him in the category with Job and Noah. This man's excellent spirit has stood the test of time and people are going, there's nobody like Daniel. But then we feel that this is only the shadow of the great exile. Because even though while he's still living, he's recognized of being like Noah and like Job, the word from God is this, he can only deliver himself. And the pit actually proves it. Right after he is delivered from the lions, This Darius pagan king gathers up all the people because after he's the one who wrote the law and signed the law, but in his folly and in his pride, he casts all the men and their wives and their children into the pit and they are immediately eaten by the lions. Death still reigns in the pit, even though Daniel's life was spared. But as we have been rehearsing, and I want our hearts all over again to receive with joy this morning, that Daniel is but a shadow of the true and great exile. That when Jesus stepped onto the scene, from the time he was tempted by the Satan in the wilderness, he was thronged by opposition. 
He even says by the end of his story in Luke chapter 22 that his temptation continued to the end. It wasn't just that single moment that he like defeated Satan, but he was constantly being pressured by temptation because he was standing against it. And on the last night in the garden, he was thronged by the opposition. They all with agreement came and they came to arrest him. He says, am I, am I a criminal that hasn't been speaking freely in public that you have to come at night and surround me with a whole band of soldiers? The opposition thronged about him. And then they, they threw him to the lions. They threw him into the penalty of death as he was nailed to the cross and he breathed his last. But the beauty is this. <laughs> At the break of dawn, the stone rolled away, just like it did in Daniel's story. But the word was not, I'm without blame. It's not just that I'm without blame or that I did no harm. The word is, I am righteous. I have perfected all that is right and true and good. I have conquered death. I didn't just get spared from death. I destroyed death. I broke the teeth out of the lion's mouths. That foes who are with me don't have to fear the pit because I have conquered. That Jesus speaks a better word than Daniel could speak. Daniel could only have his own life spared. But Jesus says, anyone who's with me, you are free from the penalty of sin and death. Satan has no sway over you. You are whole in me. You see, the greater exile speaks a better word. His rolling stone and his life at the break of dawn says that death is shattered and we are truly free. And so if we are going to be flourishing exiles all the way to the fourth quarter, we fix our gaze on Jesus and realize that no one has any claim over us. We have been set free. We are innocent and pure before God because of the completed work of Jesus. And in that space, in that hope, in that identity, we can stay in the posture of clinging to him, even in the midst of thronging, nonstop opposition. We go, oh, I will not let go. You have already bought me. I am already yours. I am already seated in the heavenlies with you. And so clinging to that hope and setting my gaze on it, I will pray defiantly and hopefully and with discipline, awakening my soul and expressing gratitude for all that you've already done. When we find ourselves in that posture, in that place, day after day, morning, evening, night, what we're rehearsing is the capacity to be the sort of people that don't just start, but when we breathe our last with joy, we will step into glory knowing that we flourished even in the fourth quarter. Let me pray for us. Ah, ah. So God, would you, would you by your spirit just expose us, convict us? Where have we just fallen asleep on you? Where is the, the chains of, of prayerlessness just dragging us down and robbing us of having real impact where you've placed us? Awaken us, empower us. Jesus, thank you that you came for prayerless, undisciplined people that your blood avails for us. We need rescue and we thank you that it's available in you. I pray that my brothers and sisters would not just be starters, but they'd be finishers. And I also pray for any man or woman that is here today that is yet to trust Jesus as their savior and as their Lord, that they would wait no longer that they would experience the freedom and the fullness and trusting in Jesus, that even as the, the prayers are on the screen, that they would pray the prayer of commitment stepping into your kingdom today, God. 
We love you. We welcome you. And we thank you for what you're doing in, a, in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.